Welcome to Quantum Magazine's Science Podcast. Come for the science, stay for the stories. For news, interviews, videos, graphics, and more, visit quantummagazine.org. This week on the podcast, scientists are homing in on a critical warning system that arises in complex systems. Then, stick around or skip ahead for our second segment. Like avalanches in a sand pile, localized episodes of disordered brain activity may keep the overall system in balance. First, Nature's Critical Warning System by Natalie Wolchover. Nestled in the northern Wisconsin woods, Peter Lake once brimmed with golden shiners, fatheads, and other minnows, which plucked algae-eating fleas from the murky water. Then, seven years ago, a crew of ecologists began stepping up the lake's population of predatory largemouth bass. To the 39 bass already present, they added 12, then 15 more a year later, and another 15 a month after that. The bass hunted down the minnows and drove survivors to the rocky shoreline, which gave fleas free rein to multiply and pick the water clean. Meanwhile, bass hatchlings, formerly gobbled up by the minnows, flourished. And in 2010, the bass population exploded to more than 1,000. The original algae-laced minnow-dominated ecosystem was gone, and the reign of bass in clear water began. Today, largemouth bass still swim rampant. Once that top predator is dominant, it's very hard to dislodge said Stephen Carpenter, an ecologist at the University of Wisconsin-Madison who led the experiment. You could do it, but it's going to cost you. The Peter Lake experiment demonstrated a well-known problem with complex systems. They are sensitive beasts. Just as when the Earth periodically plunges into an ice age, or when grasslands turn to desert, fisheries suddenly collapse, or a person slumps into a deep depression. Systems can drift toward an invisible edge where only a small change is needed to touch off a dramatic and often disastrous transformation. But systems that exhibit such critical transitions tend to be so complicated and riddled with feedback loops that experts cannot hope to calculate in advance where their tipping points lie or how much additional tampering they can withstand before snapping irrevocably into a new state. At Peter Lake, though, for the first time ever, Carpenter and his team saw the critical transition coming. Rowing from trap to trap, counting wriggling minnows and harvesting other data every day for three summers, the researchers captured the first field evidence of an early warning signal that is theorized to arise in many complex systems as they drift toward their unknown points of no return. The signal, a phenomenon called critical slowing down, is a lengthening of the time that a system takes to recover from small disturbances, such as a disease that reduces the minnow population in the vicinity of a critical transition. It occurs because a system's internal stabilizing forces, whatever they might be, become weaker near the point at which they suddenly propel the system toward a different state. Since the Peter Lake study, interest in critical slowing down has spread across disciplines, bringing with it the hope of foreseeing and preventing a plethora of catastrophic failures. As theoreticians refine their understanding of the phenomenon, experimentalists are gathering further evidence of it in a mix of real-world systems. 
We have all these complex systems, like the brain, the climate, ecosystems, the financial market, that are really difficult to understand, and we'll probably never fully understand them, said Martin Scheffer, a complex systems theorist at Von Enigen University in the Netherlands. So it's really kind of a small miracle that, across these very different systems, we could find these universal indicators of how close they are to a threshold. Experts stress that the study of critical slowing down is in its early stages and not yet ready to serve as a call to action in the management of real systems. In some cases, responding to the signal might save an endangered species, a patient's mental health, or an industry. But in other types of complex systems that have been studied mathematically, such as food webs that, unlike Peter Lake's, are so chaotic that they do not exhibit critical transitions at all, the same signal might be a false alarm. Carpenter, who has returned to Peter Lake for a new experiment, says much more research is needed to sort out these different cases. In the meantime, he said, don't try this at home. An outdoorsman who enjoys fishing, hunting, and training a flamethrower on non-native plants around his cottage in southwestern Wisconsin, Carpenter sees the big picture faster and better than most scientists, said Michael Pace, an ecologist at the University of Virginia and a collaborator. Carpenter has worked on and off for 35 years at the experimental reserve where Peter Lake is located, making use of the relatively closed systems that lakes provide to test big ideas in complexity theory. Critical slowing down, as an idea, can be traced back at least as far as the 1950s, when physicists theorized that it would arise in certain properties of matter near a phase change. But as Carpenter tells it, the potential usefulness of critical slowing down went unrecognized until a boozy conversation in 2003 at a restaurant bar in Tobago, where he and several colleagues had gathered for a conference. Crawford Buzz Halling, an eminent Canadian theoretical ecologist, had begun reminiscing about a celebrated explanation of insect outbreaks that he and two collaborators had developed in 1978. They showed that in a mathematical model of an evolving forest ecosystem, when conditions were just right, it was possible for a small change in these conditions to touch off a sudden explosion of tree-killing insects, as happens every few decades in eastern Canadian and American spruce and fir forests. But there was one aspect of the model that Hollings said he had never understood. Before an outbreak, when insects were still scarce but the model forest was drifting toward its tipping point, the insect population would start to vary more and more erratically from one place to another across the forest. Sitting across the table was William Buzz Brock, a mathematical economist specializing in dynamical systems at Madison. Brock knew right away why the variance in the insect population had increased near the brink of an outbreak. He whipped out a yellow legal pad and, over a couple bottles of wine, explained critical slowing down to his ecologist companions. Carpenter said he realized immediately that the phenomenon could serve as an ecological warning signal. It turned out the German ecologist, Christian Wissel, had made the same point 20 years earlier, but hardly anyone had noticed. The work that we started doing after that 2003 conversation has really spawned a growth industry in ecology, Carpenter said. Peter Lake's food web has two stable states, known in math lingo as attractors. In one possible state, the lake is laced with algae, and largemouth bass are scarce. This gives minnows the run of the place, 
They devour the water fleas, enabling the algae to flourish, as well as most newly hatched bass. The feedback loop reinforces the state of the lake, correcting for small fluctuations away from equilibrium. When, for instance, disease afflicts the minnows, the resulting flea surplus allows their numbers to quickly bounce back. But Peter Lake is also stable when it is clear and full of bass. In this alternative state, predation is high, so minnow numbers are curbed. This allows water fleas to thrive, which suppresses algae, and bass hatchlings to reach maturity. Once again, the ecosystem is driven by a self-reinforcing feedback loop. In a simplified diagram of the ecosystem's possible states, the two stable states form the upper and lower sections of an S-shaped curve. If the ecosystem drifts away from this curve, it quickly returns to it, staying anchored to either the upper or the lower state, depending on which feedback loop dominates its dynamics. Over time, the ecosystem may wander horizontally along the curve, swept by a current of outside influences toward one of the hairpin bends, a tipping point. When Carpenter and his crew increased the lake's bass population, the ecosystem drifted from the bottom left part of the S-curve toward the first bend. As it approached this tipping point, the feedback loop that favored minnows started to lose its dominance over the competing feedback loop that favored bass. The effects nearly canceled each other out. Consequently, when disease and other random disturbances pushed the species' populations away from the curve, the ecosystem took much longer to restabilize than before. This is critical slowing down. The slowdown allows disturbances to the ecosystem to accumulate, which is why, in Holling's model, the variance in insect numbers increases near the brink of an outbreak. And when Carpenter and his team counted minnows in 60 traps each day, the variance in the minnow counts also increased as the tipping point of the critical transition approached. Peter Lake's food web is now anchored to the top of the S-curve. Removing enough bass to propel the system to its left tipping point and restore it to its minnow-dominated state would probably only be possible using a ruthless and indiscriminate fish poison. No one likes that approach, Pace said. Anyway, it isn't necessary. For the new Peter Lake experiment, the dominance of bass or minnows is irrelevant. Critical slowing down has to be actionable to be useful in preventing real-world catastrophes. Two years ago, Carpenter and his crew began gradually enriching Peter Lake with nutrients to drive it to the brink of a different critical transition. The onset of an algae bloom. When they became statistically confident that they had measured critical slowing down in pH and algae levels, they stopped enriching the lake and waited to see whether the algae bloom would happen anyway or if the researchers' response to the signal allowed the lake to return to normal. I can definitely say that you get very strong critical slowing down indicators from algae blooms. And I can also say we had some success in halting them, Carpenter said, stressing that the findings have not yet been peer-reviewed. Eventually, he said, ecosystem managers with limited resources might use measurements of critical slowing down to compare the relative well-being of different lakes, triaging them into healthy, deteriorating, and doomed categories, and concentrating their efforts where they can make the most difference. Lissandro Benedetti Cecchi, an ecologist at the University of Pisa in Italy, has found strong signals of critical slowing down in response to the deterioration of the intertidal marine ecosystem in the Mediterranean. 
There, the intertidal zone can be dominated either by species-diverse miniature forests or by environmentally unfavorable turf. As Benedetti Cecchi and his team deteriorated small patches of forest, driving them toward the tipping point at which turf takes over, with care taken to avoid harming non-experimental areas, they measured critical slowing down in the forest's recovery time. In a separate study that has not yet been published, they found that the recovery length, or the distance needed for a turf-dominated region to transition back to a healthy forest-dominated region, also increased near the tipping point. Benedetti Cecchi hopes measurements of recovery time and length will eventually become part of every coastal wildlife manager's toolkit. My vision is to have an alarm system over the coast of the civilized world, where you can measure the environmental conditions of the system, he said. Any change in conditions would provide indication where something is going wrong. Martin Sheffer and his collaborators have found that critical slowing down in mood variations can serve as an indicator of impending depressive episodes. They're now looking for the signal in neuronal activity before migraine attacks, which affect 12% of adults and are believed to be triggered by critical transitions in the cerebral cortex. All kinds of other factors make people move closer and further from the tipping point of a migraine. But so far we have no way of measuring that, Sheffer said. If we can measure objectively how close the brain is to this tipping point, we can do much more powerful research on what are potential causal factors. Other researchers have begun using critical slowing down as a tool for predicting the future of Earth's climate. Back in 2008, Bacillus Dacos of ETH Zurich in Switzerland and collaborators found evidence in paleoclimate data that critical slowing down preceded many abrupt climatic shifts in Earth's history, such as the ends of ice ages and the desertification of North Africa, suggesting that many major climate systems undergo critical transitions. In a study of current observational data published in September, Tim Lenton and Chris Bolton, Earth system scientists at the University of Exeter in the United Kingdom, measured a slowing down of sea surface temperature fluctuations in an ocean circulation pattern called the Pacific Decadal Oscillation, or PDO. The PDO itself doesn't seem to undergo critical transitions, but a weakening of its internal stabilizing forces could be bad news for related marine ecosystems that do have tipping points. Currently, Lenton said, climate scientists tend to treat critical transitions in Earth's climate as high-impact but low-probability events. However, a really good risk assessment, based on critical slowing down, would show, he said, that if we carry on climate change business as usual, these become high-impact, high-probability events. But with no window into the intricate internal workings of most complex systems, we can often only guess whether they have multiple stable states and critical transitions. Many real-world systems appear to follow the Peter Lake blueprint. But others are so chaotic that their variables evolve unpredictably and do not exhibit critical transitions at all. This could be true of some climate systems and even some lakes. In 2010, theoretical ecologists at the University of California, Davis, showed that in a particular model of a three-species lake food web, one of the species can get knocked off balance and go extinct without ever showing signs of critical slowing down. These are systems which are just a bit more complicated in the underlying dynamics, said Alan Hastings, who led the study. Unlike the S-curve representing Peter Lake's stable states, Hastings said, for these ecosystems, you can't draw a picture. 
Not only is the picture impossibly more complicated, but the picture doesn't even exist. In other cases, critical slowing down might be present in a system, but too weak to be easily measured. Jeff Gore, a biophysicist at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology and a co-investigator on the Mediterranean Shoreline Study, has also led a series of detailed studies of critical slowing down in laboratory yeast cultures, ecosystems that Gore admits to caring nothing about, but which exhibit unambiguous critical transitions. In yeast cultures that are stabilized by multiple environmental influences at the same time, Gore's team recently reported that signals of critical slowing down can, for certain combinations of influences, become washed out and difficult to detect. A recent review paper by Sheffer, Carpenter, Dacos, and Egbert Van Ness of Wageningen University summarizes what is currently known about the scope of critical slowing down, including its limitations. You can look at the glass being half-empty and say, oh yeah, there's all those situations where we cannot really expect critical slowing down, Sheffer said. But I think it's a miracle that the glass is actually half-full. Second, A Fundamental Theory to Model the Mind, by Jennifer Ouellette. In 1999, the Danish physicist Per Bach proclaimed to a group of neuroscientists that it had taken him only 10 minutes to determine where the field had gone wrong. Perhaps the brain was less complicated than they thought, he said. Perhaps, he said, the brain worked on the same fundamental principles as a simple sandpile, in which avalanches of various sizes help keep the entire system stable overall, a process he dubbed self-organized criticality. As much as scientists in other fields adore outspoken know-it-all physicists, Bach's audacious idea that the brain's ordered complexity and thinking ability arise spontaneously from the disordered electrical activity of neurons did not meet with immediate acceptance. But over time, in fits and starts, Bach's radical argument has grown into a legitimate scientific discipline. Now, about 150 scientists worldwide investigate so-called critical phenomena in the brain, the topic of at least three focused workshops in 2013 alone. Add the ongoing efforts to found a journal devoted to such studies, and you have all the hallmarks of a field moving from the fringes of disciplinary boundaries to the mainstream. In the 1980s, Bach first wondered how the exquisite order seen in nature arises out of the disordered mix of particles that constitute the building blocks of matter. He found an answer in phase transition, the process by which a material transforms from one phase of matter to another. The change can be sudden, like water evaporating into steam, or gradual, like a material becoming superconductive. The precise moment of transition, when the system is halfway between one phase and the other, is called the critical point, or, more colloquially, the tipping point. Classical phase transitions require what is known as precise tuning. In the case of water evaporating into vapor, the critical point can only be reached if the temperature and pressure are just right. But Bach proposed a means by which simple local interactions between the elements of a system could spontaneously reach that critical point. 
hence the term self-organized criticality. Think of sand running from the top of an hourglass to the bottom. Grain by grain, the sand accumulates. Eventually, the growing pile reaches a point where it is so unstable that the next grain to fall may cause it to collapse in an avalanche. When a collapse occurs, the base widens, and the sand starts to pile up again, until the mound once again hits the critical point and founders. It is through this series of avalanches of various sizes that the sand pile, a complex system of millions of tiny elements, maintains overall stability. While these small instabilities paradoxically keep the sand pile stable, once the pile reaches the critical point, there is no way to tell whether the next grain to drop will cause an avalanche, or just how big any given avalanche will be. All one can say for sure is that smaller avalanches will occur more frequently than larger ones, following what is known as a power law. Bach introduced self-organized criticality in a landmark 1987 paper, one of the most highly cited physics papers of the last 30 years. Bach began to see the stabilizing role of frequent smaller collapses wherever he looked. His 1996 book, How Nature Works, extended the concept beyond simple sand piles to other complex systems, earthquakes, financial markets, traffic jams, biological evolution, the distribution of galaxies in the universe, and the brain. Bach's hypothesis implies that, most of the time, the brain teeters on the edge of a phase transition hovering between order and disorder. The brain is an incredibly complex machine. Each of its tens of billions of neurons is connected to thousands of others, and their interactions give rise to the emergent process we call thinking. According to Bach, the electrical activity of brain cells shift back and forth between calm periods and avalanches, just like the grains of sand in a sand pile, so that the brain is always balanced precariously right at that critical point. A better understanding of these critical dynamics could shed light on what happens when the brain malfunctions. Self-organized criticality also holds promise as a unifying theoretical framework. According to the neurophysiologist Dante Chialvo, most of the current models in neuroscience apply only to single experiments. To replicate the results from other experiments, scientists must change the parameters, tune the system, or use a different model entirely. Self-organized criticality has a certain intuitive appeal, but a good scientific theory must be more than elegant and beautiful. Bach's notion has had its share of critics, in part because his approach strikes many as ridiculously broad. He saw nothing strange about leaping across disciplinary boundaries and using self-organized criticality to link the dynamics of forest fires, measles, and the large-scale structure of the universe, often in a single talk. Nor was he one to mince words. His abrasive personality did not endear him to his critics. Although Lee Smolin, a physicist at the Perimeter Institute for Theoretical Physics in Canada, has chalked this up to childlike simplicity rather than arrogance. It would not have occurred to him that there was any other way to be, Smolin wrote in a remembrance after Bach's death in 2002. Science is hard, and we have to say what we think. Nonetheless, Bach's ideas found fertile ground in a handful of like-minded scientists. Chialvo, now with UCLA and the National Scientific and Technical Research Council in Argentina, met Bach at Brookhaven National Laboratory around 1990 
and became convinced that self-organized criticality could explain brain activity. He, too, encountered considerable resistance. I had to put up with a number of critics because we didn't have enough data, Chiavo said. Dietmar Plenz, a neuroscientist with the National Institute of Mental Health, recalled that it was impossible to win a grant in neuroscience to work on self-organized criticality at the time, given the lack of experimental evidence. Since 2003, however, the body of evidence showing that the brain exhibits key properties of criticality has grown, from examinations of slices of cortical tissue and electroencephalography, or EEG recordings, of the interactions between individual neurons, to large-scale studies comparing the predictions of computer models with data from functional magnetic resonance, or fMRI imaging. Now the field is mature enough to stand up to any fair criticism, Chialvo said. One of the first empirical tests of Bach's Sandpile model took place in 1992 in the physics department of the University of Oslo. The physicists confined piles of rice between glass plates and added grains one at a time, capturing the resulting avalanche dynamics on camera. They found that the piles of elongated grains of rice behaved much like Bach's simplified model. Most notably, the smaller avalanches were more frequent than the larger ones, following the expected power law distribution. That is, if there were 100 small avalanches involving only 10 grains during a given time frame, there would be 10 avalanches involving 100 grains in the same period, but only a single large avalanche involving 1,000 grains. The same pattern had been observed in earthquakes and their aftershocks. If there are 100 quakes measuring 6.0 on the Gutenberg-Richter scale in a given year, there will be 10 7.0 quakes and one 8.0 quake. Ten years later, Plenz and a colleague, John Beggs, now a biophysicist at Indiana University, observed the same pattern of avalanches in the electrical activity of neurons and cortical slices, the first key piece of evidence that the brain functions at criticality. It was something that no one believed the brain would do, Plenz said. The surprise is, that is exactly what happens. Studies using magnetoencephalography, or MEG, and Chialvo's own work, comparing computer simulations with fMRI imaging data of the brain's resting state, have since added to the evidence that the brain exhibits these key avalanche dynamics. But perhaps it is not so surprising. There can be no phase transitions without a critical point, and without transitions, a complex system, like Bach's sandpile or the brain, cannot adapt. That is why avalanches only show up at criticality, a sweet spot where a system is perfectly balanced between order and disorder, according to Plenz. They typically occur when the brain is in its normal resting state. Avalanches are a mechanism by which a complex system avoids becoming trapped, or phase-locked, in one of two extreme cases. At one extreme, there is too much order, such as during an epileptic seizure. The interactions among elements are too strong and rigid, so the system cannot adapt to changing conditions. At the other, there is too much disorder. The neurons aren't communicating as much or aren't as broadly interconnected throughout the brain, so information can't spread as efficiently and, once again, the system is unable to adapt. A complex system that hovers between boring randomness and boring regularity is surprisingly stable overall 
said Olaf Sporns, a cognitive neuroscientist at Indiana University. Boring is bad, he said, at least for a critical system. In fact, if you try to avoid ever sparking an avalanche, eventually when one does occur, it is likely to be really large, said Raisa D'Souza, a complex system scientist at the University of California, Davis, who simulated just such a generic system last year. If you spark avalanches all the time, you've used up all the fuel, so to speak, and so there is no opportunity for large avalanches. D'Souza's research applies these dynamics to better understand power outages across the electrical grid. The brain, too, needs sufficient order to function properly, but also enough flexibility to adapt to changing conditions. Otherwise, the organism could not survive. This could be one reason that the brain exhibits hallmarks of self-organized criticality. It confers an evolutionary advantage. A brain that is not critical is a brain that does exactly the same thing every minute. Or in the other extreme, is so chaotic that it does a completely random thing no matter what the circumstances, Chialvo said. That is the brain of an idiot. When the brain veers away from criticality, information can no longer percolate through the system as efficiently. One study examined sleep deprivation. Subjects remained awake for 36 hours and then took a reaction time test while an EEG monitored their brain activity. The more sleep-deprived the subject, the more the person's brain activity veered away from the critical balance point, and the worse the performance on the test. Another study collected data from epileptic subjects during seizures. The EEG recordings revealed that, mid-seizure, the telltale avalanches of criticality vanished. There was too much synchronization among neurons. And then, Plen said, information processing breaks down, people lose consciousness, and they don't remember what happened until they recover. Chialvo envisioned self-organized criticality providing a broader, more fundamental theory for neuroscientists, like those found in physics. He believes it could be used to model the mind in all its possible states. Awake, asleep, under anesthesia, suffering a seizure, and under the influence of a psychedelic drug, among many others. This is especially relevant as neuroscience moves deeper into the realm of big data. The latest advanced imaging techniques are capable of mapping synapses and monitoring brain activity at unprecedented resolutions, with a corresponding explosion in the size of datasets. Billions of dollars in research funding has launched the Human Connectome Project, which aims to build a network map of neural pathways in the brain, and the brain research through advancing innovative neurotechnologies, or BRAIN, dedicated to developing new technological tools for recording signals from cells. There is also Europe's Human Brain Project, working to simulate the complete human brain on a supercomputer, and China's Brainatome Project to integrate data collected from every level of the brain's hierarchy of complex networks. But without an underlying theory, it will be difficult to glean all the potential insights hidden in the data. It is fine to build maps, and it is fine to catalog pieces and how they are related, so long as you don't lose track of the fact that When the system you map actually functions, it is in an integrated system and it is dynamic, Sporn said. The structure of the brain, the precise map of who connects with whom, is almost irrelevant by itself, Chialvo said. 
or rather, it is necessary but not sufficient to decipher how cognition and behavior are generated in the brain. What is relevant is the dynamics, Chiavo said. He then compared the brain with a street map of Los Angeles containing details of all the connections at every scale, from private driveways to public freeways. The map tells us only about the structural connections. It does not help predict how traffic moves along those connections or where and when a traffic jam is likely to form. The map is static. Traffic is dynamic. So, too, is the activity of the brain. In recent work, Chiavo said, researchers have demonstrated that both traffic dynamics and brain dynamics exhibit criticality. Sporns emphasizes that it remains to be seen just how robust this phenomenon might be in the brain, pointing out that more evidence is needed beyond the observation of power laws in brain dynamics. In particular, the theory still lacks a clear description for how criticality arises from neurobiological mechanisms, the signaling of neurons in local and distributed circuits. But he admits that he is rooting for the theory to succeed. It makes so much sense, he said. If you were to design a brain, you would probably want criticality in the mix. But ultimately, it is an empirical question. You're listening to Quantum Magazine's Science Podcast, with music by Pottington Bear. I'm Leah Alfonso. For news, interviews, graphics, and more, visit quantummagazine.org.